Act One of Candida. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Candida by George Bernard Shaw. Dramatis Personae. Proserpine Garnet. Read by Elizabeth Clett. James Morell. Read by Peter Bishop. Alexander Lexi Mill. Read by Martin Geeson. Burgess. Read by Algie Pug. Candida. Read by Ariel Lipshaw. Eugene Marchbanks. Read by M. B. Narrated by Elizabeth Clatt. Act One. A fine October morning in the northeast suburbs of London, a vast district many miles away from the London of Mayfair and St. James's, much less known there than the Paris of the Rue de Rivoli and the Champs-Élysées, and much less narrow, squalid, fetid, and airless in its slums, strong and comfortable, prosperous middle-class life, wide-streeted, myriad-populated, well-served with ugly iron urinals, radical clubs, tram-lines, and a perpetual stream of yellow cars enjoying in its main thoroughfares the luxury of grass-grown front gardens, untrodden by the foot of man, save as to the path from the gate to the hall-door, but blighted by an intolerable monotony of miles and miles of graceless, characterless brick houses, black iron railings, stony pavements, slaty roofs, and respectably ill-dressed or disreputably poorly-dressed people, quite accustomed to the place and mostly plodding about somebody else's work, which they would not do if they themselves could help it. The little energy and eagerness that crop up show themselves in cockney cupidity and business push. Even the policemen and the chapels are not infrequent enough to break the monotony. The sun is shining cheerfully, there is no fog, and though the smoke effectually prevents anything, whether faces and hands or bricks and mortar, from looking fresh and clean, it is not hanging heavily enough to trouble a Londoner. This desert of unattractiveness has its oasis. Near the outer end of the Hackney Road is a park of two hundred and seventeen acres, fenced in, not by railings, but by a wooden paling, and containing plenty of greensward trees, a lake for bathers, flower-beds with the flowers arranged carefully in patterns by the admired cockney art of carpet-gardening and a sand-pit, imported from the seaside for the delight of the children, but speedily deserted on its becoming a natural vermin preserve for all the petty fauna of Kingsland, Hackney, and Hoxton. A bandstand, an unfinished forum for religious, anti-religious, and political orators, cricket pitches, a gymnasium, and an old-fashioned stone kiosk are among its attractions. Wherever the prospect is bounded by trees or rising green grounds, it is a pleasant place. Where the ground stretches far to the grey palings, with bricks and mortar, sky-signs, crowded chimneys and smoke beyond, the prospect makes it desolate and sordid. The best view of Victoria Park is from the front window of St. Dominic's Parsonage, from which not a single chimney is visible. The Parsonage is a semi-detached villa with a front garden and a porch. Visitors go up the flight of steps to the porch. Tradespeople and members of the family go down by a door under the steps to the basement, with a breakfast-room, used for all meals in front, and the kitchen at the back. Upstairs, on the level of the hall-door, is the drawing-room, with its large plate-glass window looking on the park. In this room, the only sitting-room that can be spared from the children and the family meals, the parson, the Reverend James Maver Morell, does his work. He is sitting in a strong round-backed revolving chair at the right-hand end of a long table, which stands across the window, so that he can cheer himself with the view of the park at his elbow. At the opposite end of the table, adjoining it, is a little table, only half the width of the other, with a typewriter on it. His typist is sitting at this machine, with her back to the window. The large table is littered with pamphlets, journals, letters, nests of drawers, an office diary, postage scales, and the like. A spare chair for visitors having business with the parson is in the middle, turned to his end. Within reach of his hand is a stationery case and a cabinet photograph in a frame. 
Behind him the right-hand wall, recessed above the fireplace, is fitted with bookshelves, on which an adept eye can measure the parson's divinity and casuistry by a complete set of Browning's poems and Maurice's theological essays, and guess at his politics from a yellow-backed Progress and Poverty, Fabian Essays, A Dream of John Ball, Marx's Capital, and half a dozen other literary landmarks in socialism. Opposite him on the left, near the typewriter, is the door. Further down the room, opposite the fireplace, a bookcase stands on a cellaret with a sofa near it. There is a generous fire burning, and the hearth, with a comfortable armchair and a japanned flower-painted coal-scuttle at one side, a miniature chair for a boy or girl on the other, a nicely varnished wooden mantelpiece, with neatly moulded shelves, tiny bits of mirror let into the panels, and a travelling clock in a leather case, the inevitable wedding present, and on the wall above a large autotype of the chief figure in Titian's Virgin of the Assumption, is very inviting. Altogether the room is the room of a good housekeeper, vanquished as far as the table is concerned by an untidy man, but elsewhere mistress of the situation. The furniture, in its ornamental aspect, betrays the style of the advertised drawing-room suite, of the pushing suburban furniture-dealer, but there is nothing useless or pretentious in the room. The paper and panelling are dark, throwing the big cheery window and the park outside into strong relief. The Rev. James Maver Morell is a Christian socialist clergyman of the Church of England, and an active member of the Guild of St. Matthew and the Christian Social Union. A vigorous, genial, popular man of forty, robust and good-looking, full of energy, with pleasant, hearty, considerate manners and a sound, unaffected voice, which he uses with the clean, athletic articulation of a practised orator, and with a wide range and perfect command of expression. He is a first-rate clergyman, able to say what he likes to whom he likes, to lecture people without setting himself up against them, to impose his authority on them without humiliating them, and to interfere in their business without impertinence. His wellspring of spiritual enthusiasm and sympathetic emotion has never run dry for a moment. He still eats and sleeps heartily enough to win the daily battle between exhaustion and recuperation triumphantly. Withal a great baby, pardonably vain of his powers and unconsciously pleased with himself. He has a healthy complexion, a good forehead, with the brows somewhat blunt, and the eyes bright and eager, a mouth resolute but not particularly well cut, and a substantial nose, with the mobile spreading nostrils of the dramatic orator, but like all his features, void of subtlety. The typist, Miss Proserpine Garnet, is a brisk little woman of about thirty, of the lower middle class, neatly but cheaply dressed in a black merino skirt and blouse, rather pert and quick of speech, and not very civil in her manner, but sensitive and affectionate. She is clattering away busily at her machine, whilst Morel opens the last of his morning letters. He realizes its contents with a comic groan of despair. Another lecture? Yes. The Hoxton Freedom Group want me to address them on Sunday morning. What are they? Mm, communist anarchists, I think. Just like anarchists not to know that they can't have a parson on Sunday. Tell them to come to church if they want to hear me. It will do them good. Say I can only come on Mondays and Thursdays. Have you the diary there? Yes. Have I any lecture on for next Monday? Tower Hamlet's Radical Club. Well, Thursday then. English Land Restoration League. What next? Guild of St. Matthew on Monday. Independent Labour Party, Greenwich Branch, on Thursday. Monday, Social Democratic Federation, Mile End Branch. Thursday, First Confirmation Class. Oh, I'd better tell them you can't come. There are only half a dozen ignorant and conceited costermongers without five shillings between them. Ha! <laughs> but you see they're near relatives of mine, Miss Garnet. Relatives of yours? Yes, we have the same father. In heaven. Oh, is that all? Ah, you don't believe it. Everybody says it. Nobody believes it. Nobody. Well, well, come, Miss Proserpine, can't you find a date for the Costas? What about the 25th? That was vacant the day before yesterday. Engaged. The Fabian Society. Bother the Fabian Society. Is the 28th gone too? City dinner. You're invited to dine with the Founders' Company. That'll do. I'll go to the Hoxton Group of Freedom instead. 
She enters the engagement in silence, with implacable disparagement of the Hoxton anarchists in every line of her face. Morel bursts open the cover of a copy of the Church Reformer, which has come by post, and glances through Mr. Stuart Hendlam's leader and the Guild of St. Matthew News. These proceedings are presently enlivened by the appearance of Morel's curate, the Reverend Alexander Mill, a young gentleman gathered by Morel from the nearest university settlement, whither he had come from Oxford to give the East End of London the benefit of his university training. He is a conceitedly well-intentioned, enthusiastic, immature person, with nothing positively unbearable about him except a habit of speaking with his lips carefully closed for half an inch from each corner, a finicking arthulation, and a set of horribly corrupt vowels, notably ow for o, this being his chief means of bringing Oxford refinement to bear on hackney vulgarity. Morel, whom he is won over by a dog-like devotion, looks up indulgently from the church reformer as he enters. Well, Lexi, late again as usual. I'm afraid so. I wish I could get up in the morning. <laughs> Watch and pray, Lexi. Watch and pray. I know. But how can I watch and pray when I am asleep? Isn't that so, Miss Prossy? Miss Garnet, if you please. I beg your pardon, Miss Garnet. You've got to do all the work today. Why? Never mind why. It'll do you good to earn your supper before you eat it for once in a way as I do. Come, don't dawdle. You should have been off on your rounds half an hour ago. Is she in earnest, Morel? Yes, I am going to dawdle today. You, you don't know how. <laughs> don't I? I'm going to have this day all to myself, or at least the forenoon. My wife's coming back. She's due here at 11.45. Coming back already? With the children? I thought they were to stay to the end of the month. So they are. She's only coming up for two days to get some flannel things for Jimmy, and to see how we're getting on without her. But, my dear Morel, if what Jimmy and Fluffy had was Scarlatina, do you think it wise? Scarlatina! Rubbish! German measles. I bought it into the house myself from the Pycroft Street School. A parson is like a doctor, my boy. He must face infection as a soldier must face bullets. He rises and claps Lexi on the shoulder. Catch the measles if you can, Lexi. She'll nurse you, and what a piece of luck that will be for you, eh? It's so hard to understand you about Mrs. Morel. Ah, my boy, get married. Get married to a good woman, and then you'll understand. That's a foretaste of what will be best in the kingdom of heaven we are trying to establish on earth. That will cure you of dawdling. An honest man feels that he must pay heaven for every hour of happiness, with a good spell of hard, unselfish work to make others happy. We have no more right to consume happiness without producing it than to consume wealth without producing it. Get a wife like my candida, and you'll always be in arrear with your repayment. He pats Lexi affectionately on the back, and is leaving the room when Lexi calls to him. Oh, wait a bit, I forgot. Morel halts and turns with the doorknob in his hand. Your father-in-law is coming round to see you. Morel shuts the door again. Mr. Burgess? Yes, I passed him in the park, arguing with somebody. He gave me good day and asked me to let you know that he was coming. But he hasn't called here for, I may almost say, for years. Are you sure, Lexi? You're not joking, are you? No, sir, really. Hmm. Time for him to take another look at Candida before she grows out of his knowledge. He resigns himself to the inevitable and goes out. Lexi looks after him with beaming, foolish worship. What a good man! What a thorough, loving soul he is! He takes Morel's place at the table, making himself very comfortable as he takes out a cigarette. Proserpine, pulling the letter she has been working at off the typewriter and folding it. Oh, a man ought to be able to be fond of his wife without making a fool of himself about her. Oh, Miss Prossy! Proserpine rises busily and comes to the stationery case to get an envelope, in which she encloses the letter as she speaks. 
Candida here and Candida there and Candida everywhere. It's enough to drive anyone out of their senses. To hear a perfectly commonplace woman raved about in that absurd manner, merely because she's got good hair and a tolerable figure. I think her extremely beautiful, Miss Garnet. He takes the photograph up, looks at it, and adds with even greater impressiveness. Mm, extremely beautiful. How fine her eyes are. Her eyes are not a bit better than mine. Now. He puts down the photograph and stares austerely at her. And you know very well that you think me dowdy and second-rate enough. Heaven forbid that I should think of any of God's creatures in such a way. Thank you. That's very nice and comforting. I had no idea you had any feeling against Mrs. Morell. I have no feeling against her. She's very nice, very good-hearted. I'm very fond of her, and can appreciate her real qualities far better than any man can. He shakes his head sadly and turns to the bookcase, looking along the shelves for a volume. She follows him with intense pepperiness. You don't believe me? You think I'm jealous. Oh, what a profound knowledge of the human heart you have, Mr. Lexy Mill. How well you know the weaknesses of woman, don't you? It must be so nice to be a man and have a fine, penetrating intellect instead of mere emotions like us, and to know that the reason we don't share your amorous delusions is that we're all jealous of one another." She abandons him with a toss of her shoulders, and crosses to the fire to warm her hands. Ah, if you women only had the same clue to man's strength that you have to his weakness, Miss Prossy, there would be no woman question. Where did you hear Morell say that? You didn't invent it yourself. You're not clever enough. That's quite true. I am not ashamed of owing him that, as I owe him so many other spiritual truths. He said it at the annual conference of the Women's Liberal Federation. Allow me to add that though they didn't appreciate it, I, a mere man, did. Well, when you talk to me, give me your own ideas, such as they are, and not his. You never cut a poorer figure than when you were trying to imitate him. I try to follow his example, not to imitate him. Yes, you do. You imitate him. Why do you tuck your umbrella under your left arm instead of carrying it in your hand like anyone else? Why do you walk with your chin stuck out before you, hurrying along with that eager look in your eyes? You, who never get up before half-past nine in the morning. Why do you say, knowledge, in church, though you always say knowledge in private conversation? Bah! Do you think I don't know? Here. Come and set about your work. We've wasted enough time for one morning. Here's a copy of the diary for today. Thank you. He takes it and stands at the table with his back to her, reading it. She begins to transcribe her shorthand notes on the typewriter without troubling herself about his feelings. Mr. Burgess enters unannounced. He is a man of sixty, made coarse and sordid by the compulsory selfishness of petty commerce and later on softened into sluggish bumptiousness by overfeeding and commercial success. A vulgar, ignorant, guzzling man, offensive and contemptuous to people whose labour is cheap, respectful to wealth and rank, and quite sincere and without rancour or envy in both attitudes. Finding him without talent, the world has offered him no decently paid work except ignoble work, and he has become in consequence somewhat hoggish. But he has no suspicion of this himself and honestly regards his commercial prosperity as the inevitable and socially wholesome triumph of the ability, industry, shrewdness, and experience in business of a man who in private is easy-going, affectionate, and humorously convivial to a fault. Corporeally he is a podgy man, with a square, clean-shaven face and a square beard under his chin, dust-coloured, with a patch of grey in the centre, and small, watery blue eyes with a plaintively sentimental expression which he transfers easily to his voice by his habit of pompously intoning his sentences. They told me Mr. Morell was here. He's upstairs. I'll fetch him for you. You're not the same young lady as used to typewrite for him? No. No. She was younger. 
Miss Garnet stolidly stares at him, then goes out with great dignity. He receives this quite obtusely, and crosses to the hearthrug, where he turns and spreads himself with his back to the fire. Start on your rounds, Mr. Mill. Yes, I must be off presently. Don't let me detain you, Mr. Mill. What I come about is private between me and Mr. Morell. Oh, I have no intention of intruding, I am sure, Mr. Burgess. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you. Morell returns as Lexy is making for the door. Off to work? Yes, sir. Take my silk handkerchief and wrap your throat up. There's a cold wind. Away with you. Lexy brightens up and goes out. Spoiling your curates as usual, James. Good morning. When I pay a man and his living depends on me, I keep him in his place. I always keep my curates in their places as my helpers and comrades. If you get as much work out of your clerks and warehousemen as I do out of my curates, you must be getting rich pretty fast. Will you take your old chair? He points with curt authority to the armchair beside the fireplace, then takes the spare chair from the table and sits down in front of Burgess. Just the same as ever, James? When you last called, it was about three years ago, I think, you said the same thing a little more frankly. Your exact words then were, Just as big a fool as ever, James. Well, perhaps I did, but I meant no offence by it. A clergyman is privileged to be a bit of a fool, you know. It's only becoming in his profession that he should. Anyhow, I come here, not to rake up whole differences, but to let bygones be bygones. James, three years ago, you done me a hill turn. You done me out of a contract, and when I give you harsh words, in my natural disappointment, you turn my director again me. Well, I've come to act the part of a Christian. I forgive you, James. Confound your impudence. Is that becoming language for a clergyman, James? And you so particular, too. No, sir. It is not becoming language for a clergyman. I used the wrong word. I should have said, damn your impudence. That's what St. Paul or any honest priest would have said to you. Do you think I have forgotten that tender of yours for the contract to supply clothing to the workhouse? I acted in the interests of ratepayers, James. It was the lowest tender. You can't deny that. Yes, the lowest, because you paid worse wages than any other employer. Starvation wages. Aye, worse than starvation wages to the women who made the clothing. Your wages would have driven them to the streets to keep body and soul together. Those women were my parishioners. I shamed the guardians out of accepting your tender. I shamed the ratepayers out of letting them do it. I shamed everybody but you. How dare you, sir, come here and offer to forgive me and talk about your daughter and... Easy, James. Easy, easy. Don't get into a fluster about nothing. I've honed I was wrong. Have you? I didn't hear you. Of course I did. I hone it now. Come, I ask your pardon for the letter I wrote you. Is that enough? That's nothing. Have you raised the wages? Yes. What? I've turned a model employer. I don't employ no women now. They're all sacked, and the work is done by machinery. Not a mare as less than sixpence an hour, and the skilled hands gets the trade union rate. What have you to say to me now? Is it possible? Well, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. My dear Burgess, I most heartily beg your pardon for my hard thoughts of you. And now, don't you feel the better for the change? Come, confess, you're happier. You look happier. Well, perhaps I do. I suppose I must, since you notice it. At all events, I get my contracts accepted by a county council. They doesn't have nothing to do with me unless I pay fair wages. Curse them for a parcel of meddling fools. So that was why you raised the wages. Why else should I do it? What does it lead to but drink and huppishness in work and men? 
It's all very well for you, James. It gets you into the papers and makes a great man of you. But you never think of the arm you do, putting money into the pockets of worker men that they don't know how to spend, and taking it from people that might be making a good use on it. What is your business with me this morning? I shall not pretend to believe that you are here merely out of family sentiment. Yes, I am. Just family sentiment and nothing else. I don't believe you. Don't say that to me again, James Maver Morell. I'll say it just as often as may be necessary to convince you that it's true. I don't believe you. Oh, well, if you're determined to be unfriendly, I suppose I'd better go. He moves reluctantly towards the door. Morell makes no sign. He lingers. I didn't expect to find an unforgiven spirit in you, James. Morell, still not responding, he takes a few more reluctant steps doorwards. Then he comes back, whining. We used to get on well enough, in spite of our different opinions. Why are you so changed to me? I give you my word, I come here in pure friendliness, not wishing to be on bad terms with my own daughter's husband. Come, James, be a Christian and shake hands. He puts his hand sentimentally on Morel's shoulder. Look here, Burgess, do you want to be as welcome here as you were before you lost that contract? I do, James. I do. Honest. Then why don't you behave as you did then? How do you mean? I'll tell you. You thought me a young fool then? No, I didn't, James. I... Yes, you did. And I thought you an old scoundrel. No, you didn't, James. Now you do yourself any injustice. Yes, I did. Well, that did not prevent our getting on very well together. God made you what I call a scoundrel, and he made me what you call a fool. The effect of this observation on Burgess is to remove the keystone of his moral arch. He becomes bodily weak, and with his eyes fixed on Morel in a helpless stare, puts out his hand apprehensively to balance himself as if the floor had suddenly sloped under him. It was not for me to quarrel with his handiwork in the one case more than in the other. So long as you come here, honestly, as a self-respecting, thorough, convinced scoundrel, justifying your scoundrelism and proud of it, you are welcome. But I won't have you here snivelling about being a model employer and a converted man when you're only an apostate with your coat turned for the sake of a county council contract. He nods at him to enforce the point, then goes to the hearthrug, where he takes up a comfortably commanding position with his back to the fire and continues. No, I like a man to be true to himself, even in wickedness. Come now, either take your hat and go, or else sit down and give me a good scoundrelly reason for wanting to be friends with me. Burgess, whose emotions have subsided sufficiently to be expressed by a dazed grin, is relieved by this concrete proposition. He ponders it for a moment, and then, slowly and very modestly, sits down in the chair Morel has just left. That's right. Now, out with it. Well, you are a queer bird, James, and no mistake. But one can't help liking you. Besides, as I said afore, of course one don't take all a clergyman says seriously, or the world couldn't go on, could it now? Well... I don't mind telling you, since it's your wish we should be free with one another, that I did think you a bit of a fool once, but I'm beginning to think that perhaps I was behind the times a bit. Aha! You're finding that out at last, are you? Yes, times has changed more than I could have believed. Five years ago, no sensible man would have thought of taken up with your ideas. I used to wonder you was let preach at all. Why? I know a clergyman that has been kept out of his job for years by the Bishop of London, although the poor fellow's not a bit more religious than you are. But today, if anyone was offered to bet me a thousand pound that you'll end up being a bishop yourself, I shouldn't venture to take the bet. You and your crew are getting influential. I can see that. They'll have to give you something some day, even if it's only to stop your mouth. You had the right instant art of all, James. The line you took is the paid line in the long run for a man of your sort. Shake hands, Burgess. Now you're talking 
honestly. I don't think they'll make me a bishop, but if they do, I'll introduce you to the biggest jobbers I can get to come to my dinner parties. You will have your joke, James. Our quarrel's made up now, isn't it? Say yes, James. Startled, they turn quickly, and find that Candida has just come in, and is looking at them with an amused maternal indulgence, which is her characteristic expression. She is a woman of thirty-three, well-built, well-nourished, likely, one guesses, to become matronly later on, but now quite at her best, with the double charm of youth and motherhood. Her ways are those of a woman who has found that she can always manage people by engaging their affection, and who does so frankly and instinctively without the smallest scruple. So far she is like any other pretty woman who is just clever enough to make the most of her sexual attractions, for trivially selfish ends. But Candida's serene brow, courageous eyes, and well-set mouth and chin, signify largeness of mind and dignity of character, to ennoble her cunning in the affections. A wise-hearted observer, looking at her, would at once guess that whoever had placed the Virgin of the Assumption over her hearth, did so because he fancied some spiritual resemblance between them, and yet would not suspect either her husband or herself of any such idea, or indeed of any concern with the art of Titian. Just now she is in bonnet and mantle, laden with a strapped rug with her umbrella stuck through it, a handbag, and a supply of illustrated papers. Candida! Why! My darling! Hurrying to her and seizing the rug strap. I intended to meet you at the train. I let the time slip. I was so engrossed by... I forgot. Oh! He embraces her with penitent emotion. How old you, Candy? She, still in Morel's arms, offers him her cheek, which he kisses. James as me is come to an understanding, an honourable understanding. Ain't we, James? Oh, bother your understanding. You've kept me late for Candida. My poor love, how did you manage about the luggage? How— There, there, there. I wasn't alone. Eugene came down yesterday, and we travelled up together. Eugene? Yes, he's struggling with my luggage, poor boy. Go out, dear, at once, or he will pay for the cab, and I don't want that. Morel hurries out. Candida puts down her handbag, then takes off her mantle and bonnet, and puts them on the sofa with the rug, chatting meanwhile. Well, Papa, how are you getting on at home? The house ain't worth living in since you left it, Candy. I wish you'd come around and give a girl a talk on to. Who's this Eugene that's come with you? Oh, Eugene's one of James's discoveries. He found him sleeping on the embankment last June. Haven't you noticed our new picture? He gave us that. Go on. Do you mean to tell me, your home father, that cab touts or such like, off the embankment, buys pictures like that? Don't deceive me, Candy. It's a high church picture, and James chose it himself. Guess again. Eugene isn't a cab tout. Then what is he? A nobleman, I suppose. Yes, his uncle's up here. A real live earl. No. Yes. He had a seven-day bill for fifty-five pounds in his pocket when James found him on the embankment. He thought he couldn't get any money for it until the seven days were up, and he was too shy to ask for credit. Oh, he's a dear boy. We are very fond of him. Hmm. I thought you wouldn't get a pure's nevy visiting in Victoria Park, unless you were a bit of a flat. Of course, I don't owe with that picture, Candy. But still, it's a high-class, fust-rate work of art. I could see that. Be sure you introduce him to me, Candy. I can only stay about two minutes. Morel comes back with Eugene, whom Burgess contemplates moist-eyed with enthusiasm. He is a strange, shy youth of eighteen, slight, effeminate, with a delicate, childish voice, and a hunted, tormented expression and shrinking manner that show the painful sensitiveness that very swift and acute apprehensiveness produces in youth, before the character has grown to its full strength. Yet everything that his timidity and frailty suggests is contradicted by his face. He is miserably irresolute, does not know where to stand or what to do with his hands and feet, is afraid of Burgess, and would run away into solitude if he dared. But the very intensity with which he feels a perfectly commonplace position shows great nervous force, 
and his nostrils and mouth show a fiercely petulant willfulness, as to the quality of which his great imaginative eyes and fine brow are reassuring. He is so entirely uncommon as to be almost unearthly, and to prosaic people there is something noxious in this unearthliness, just as to poetic people there is something angelic in it. His dress is anarchic. He wears an old blue serge jacket, unbuttoned over a woollen lawn tennis shirt, with a silk handkerchief for a cravat, trousers matching the jacket, and brown canvas shoes. In these garments he has apparently lain in the heather and waded through the waters, but there is no evidence of his ever having brushed them. As he catches sight of a stranger on entering, he stops, and edges along the wall on the opposite side of the room. "'Come along. You can spare us a quarter of an hour at all events. This is my father-in-law, Mr. Burgess. Mr. Marchbanks.' "'Glad to meet you, sir.' "'Glad to meet you, I'm sure, Mr. Marchbanks.' Forcing him to shake hands. "'How do you find yourself this weather? Hope you ain't letting James put no foolish ideas into your head.' Foolish ideas? Oh, oh, you mean socialism? Oh, no. That's right. Well, I must go now. There's no help for it. You're not coming my way, are you, Mr. Marchbanks? Uh, which way is that? Victoria Pork Station. There's a city train at 12.25. Nonsense. Eugene will stay to lunch with us, I expect. Uh, no, I... I... Well, well... I shan't press you. I'll bet you rather lunch with candy. Some night, I hope, you'll come and dine with me at my club, the Freeman Founders in Norton Folgert. Come, say you will. Uh, thank you, Mr. Burgess. Uh, where is Norton Folgert? Uh, down in Surrey, isn't it? You'll lose your train, Papa, if you don't go at once. Come back in the afternoon and tell Mr. Marchbanks where to find the club. Down in Surrey. Ha, <laughs> ha, that's not a bad one. Well, I never met a man as didn't know Norton Folgert before. Good-bye, Mr. Morchbanks. I know you're too high-bred to take my pleasantry in bad part. He again offers his hand. Marchbanks takes it with a nervous jerk. Not at all. Bye-bye, Candy. I'll look in again later on. So long, James. Must you go? Don't stir. He goes out with unabated heartiness. Oh, I'll see you out. He follows him out. Eugene stares after them apprehensively, holding his breath until Burgess disappears. Well, Eugene. He turns with a start and comes eagerly towards her, but stops irresolutely as he meets her amused look. What do you think of my father? Uh, I, I hardly know him yet. He seems to be a very nice old gentleman. And you'll go to the Freeman Founders to dine with him, won't you? Yes, if it will please you. Do you know you are a very nice boy, Eugene, with all your queerness? If you had laughed at my father, I shouldn't have minded. But I like you ever so much better for being nice to him. Ought I to have laughed? I noticed that he said something funny, but I am so ill at ease with strangers, and I never can see a joke. I'm very sorry. He sits down on the sofa his elbows on his knees and his temples between his fists, with an expression of hopeless suffering. "'Oh, come, you great baby, you! You are worse than usual this morning. Why were you so melancholy as we came along in the cab?' Oh, "'That was nothing. I was wondering how much I ought to give the cabman. I know, it's utterly silly, but you don't know how dreadful such things are to me, how I shrink from having to deal with strange people. But it's all right.' He beamed all over and touched his hat when Morel gave him two shillings. I was on the point of offering him ten. Morel comes back with a few letters and newspapers which have come by the midday post. Oh, James, dear, he was going to give the cabman ten shillings. Ten shillings for a three-minute's drive. Oh, dear. Never mind her, Marchbanks. The overpaying instinct is a generous one, better than the underpaying instinct, and not so common. No, cowardice. Incompetence. Mrs. Morell's quite right. Of course she is. She takes up her handbag. And now I must leave you to James for the present. I suppose you are too much of a poet to know the state a woman finds her house in when she's been away for three weeks. Give me my rug. Eugene takes the strapped rug from the couch and gives it to her. She takes it in her left hand, having the bag in her right. Now hang my cloak across my arm. 
He obeys. Now my hat. He puts it into the hand which has the bag. Now open the door for me. He hurries up before her and opens the door. Thanks. She goes out, and Marchbanks shuts the door. You'll stay for lunch, Marchbanks, of course? I, I mustn't. I, I can't. You mean you won't? No, I, I should like to, indeed. Uh, thank you very much, but... Uh, but... But, 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 bosh. If you'd like to stay, stay. You don't mean to persuade me you have anything else to do. If you're shy, go and take a turn in the park and write poetry until half-past one, and then come in and have a good feed. Thank you, I should like that very much, but I really mustn't. The truth is, Mrs. Morell told me not to. She said she didn't think you'd ask me to stay to lunch, but that I was to remember, if you did, that you didn't really want me to. She said I'd understand, but I don't. Please, don't tell her I told you. Oh, is that all? Won't my suggestion that you should take a turn in the park meet the difficulty? How? Why, you duffer. No, I won't put it in that way. My dear lad, in a happy marriage like ours, there is something very sacred in the return of the wife to her home. An old friend or a truly noble and sympathetic soul is not in the way on such occasions, but a chance visitor is. The hunted, horror-stricken expression comes out with sudden vividness in Eugene's face as he understands. Morel, occupied with his own thought, goes on without noticing it. Candida thought I would rather not have you here. But she was wrong. I'm very fond of you, my boy, and I should like you to see for yourself what a happy thing it is to be married as I am. Happy? You're married? You think that? You, you believe that? I know it, my lad. La Rouchefoucauld said that there are convenient marriages, but no delightful ones. You don't know the comfort of seeing through and through a thundering liar and rotten cynic like that fellow. Ha <laughs> ha! Now off with you to the park and write your poem. Half-past one, sharp mind. We never wait for anybody. No! Stop! You shan't! I'll force it into the light! Eh? Force what? I must speak to you. There is something that must be settled between us. Now? Now! Before you leave this room! He retreats a few steps and stands as if to bar Morel's way to the door. I'm not going to leave it, my dear boy. I thought you were. Eugene, baffled by his firm tone, turns his back on him, writhing with anger. Morel goes to him and puts his hand on his shoulder, strongly and kindly, disregarding his attempt to shake it off. Come, sit down quietly, and tell me what it is. And remember, we are friends, and need not fear that either of us will be anything but patient and kind to the other, whatever we may have to say. Oh, I'm not forgetting myself. I'm only full of horror. You shall see whether this is a time for patience and kindness. Don't look at me in that self-complacent way. You think yourself stronger than I am, but I shall stagger you if you have a heart in your breast. Stagger me, my boy. Out with it. First? First? I love your wife. <laughs> Why, my dear child, of course you do. Everybody loves her. They can't help it. I like it. But, I say, Eugene, do you think yours is a case to be talked about? You're under twenty. She's over thirty. Doesn't it look rather too like a case of calf love? You dare say that of her? You think that way of the love she inspires? It is an insult to her. To her, Eugene? Take care. I have been patient. I hope to remain patient. But there are some things I won't allow. Don't force me to show you the indulgence I should show a child. Be a man. Oh, let us put aside all that cant. It horrifies me when I think of the doses of it she has had to endure in all the weary years during which you have selfishly and blindly sacrificed her to minister to your self-sufficiency. You, who have not one thought one sense in common with her. She seems to bear it pretty well. Eugene, my boy, you are making a fool of yourself, a very great fool of yourself. There's a piece of wholesome plain speaking for you. How oh, do you think I don't know all that? 
do you think that the things people make fools of themselves about are any less real and true than the things they behave sensibly about they are more true they are the only things that are true you are very calm and sensible and moderate with me because you can see that i am a fool about your wife just as no doubt that old man who was here just now is very wise over your socialism because he sees that you are a fool about it does that prove you wrong does your complacent superiority to me prove that i am wrong marchbanks some devil is putting these words into your mouth it is easy terribly easy to shake a man's faith in himself to take advantage of that to break a man's spirit is devil's work take care of what you are doing take care i know i'm doing it on purpose i told you i should stagger you they confront one another threateningly for a moment then morel recovers his dignity eugene listen to me some day i hope and trust you will be a happy man like me you will be married and you will be working with all your might and valour to make every spot on earth as happy as your own home you will be one of the makers of the kingdom of heaven on earth and who knows you may be a pioneer and master builder where i am only a humble journeyman for don't think my boy that i cannot see in you young as you are promise of higher powers than i can ever pretend to i well know that it is in the poet that the holy spirit of man the god within him is most godlike it should make you tremble to think of that to think that the heavy burden and great gift of a poet may be laid upon you it does not make me tremble it is the want of it in others that makes me tremble then help to kindle it in them in me not to extinguish it in the future when you are as happy as i am i will be your true brother in the faith i will help you to believe that god has given us a world that nothing but our own folly keeps from being a paradise i will help you to believe that every stroke of your work is sowing happiness for the great harvest that all even the humblest shall one day reap and last but trust me not least i will help you to believe that your wife loves you and is happy in her home we need such help marchbanks we need it greatly and always there are so many things to make us doubt if once we let our understanding be troubled even at home we sit as if in camp encompassed by a hostile army of doubts will you play the traitor and let them in on me is it like this for her here always a woman with a great soul craving for reality truth freedom and being fed on metaphors sermons stale perorations mere rhetoric do you think a woman's soul can live on your talent for preaching marchbanks you make it hard for me to control myself my talent is like yours in so far as it has any real worth at all it is the gift of finding words for divine truth it's the gift of the gab nothing more and nothing less what has your knack of fine talking to do with the truth any more than playing the organ has i've never been in your church but i've been to your political meetings and i've seen you do what's called rousing the meeting to enthusiasm that is you excited them till they behaved exactly as if they were drunk and their wives looked on and saw clearly enough what fools they were oh it's an old story you'll find it in the bible i imagine king david in his fits of enthusiasm was very like you but his wife despised him in her heart leave my house do you hear he advances on him threateningly marchbanks shrinking back against the couch let me alone don't touch me morel grasps him powerfully by the lapel of his coat he cowers down on the sofa stop morel if you strike me i'll kill myself i won't bear it let me go take your hand away you little snivelling cowardly whelp releasing him go before you frighten yourself into a fit i'm not afraid of you it's you who are afraid of me it looks like it doesn't it yes it does morel turns away contemptuously eugene scrambles to his feet and follows him you think because i shrink away from being brutally handled because i can do nothing but cry with rage when i am met with violence because i can't lift a heavy trunk down from the top of a cab like you because i can't fight for your wife as a navvy would all that makes you think that i'm afraid of you where you're wrong if i haven't got what you call british pluck i haven't british cowardice either i'm not afraid of a clergyman's ideas i'll fight your ideas 
I'll rescue her from her slavery to them. I'll pit my ideas against them. You are driving me out of the house because you daren't let her choose between your ideas and mine. You are afraid to let me see her again. Morel, angered, turns suddenly on him. He flies to the door in involuntary dread. Let me alone, I say. I'm going. Wait a moment. I am not going to touch you. Don't be afraid. When my wife comes back, she will want to know why you have gone. And when she finds that you are never going to cross our threshold again, she will want to have that explained too. Now, I don't wish to distress her by telling her that you have behaved like a blackguard. You shall. You must. If you give any explanation but the true one, you are a liar and a coward. Tell her what I said, and how you were strong and manly and shook me as a terrier shakes a rat and how I shrank and was terrified, and how you called me a sniveling little whelp and put me out of the house. If you don't tell her, I will. I'll, I'll write to her. Why do you want her to know this? Because she will understand me and know that I understand her. If you keep back one word of it from her, if you are not ready to lay the truth at her feet as I am, then you will know to the end of your days that she really belongs to me and not to you. Goodbye. Stop. I will not tell her. Either the truth or a lie. You must tell her if I go. Marchbanks, it is sometimes justifiable. I know, to lie. It will be useless. Goodbye, Mr. Clergyman. As he turns finally to the door, it opens, and Candida enters in housekeeping attire. Are you going, Eugene? Well, dear me, just look at you going out into the street in that state. You are a poet, certainly. Look at him, James. She takes him by the coat and brings him forward to show to Morel. Look at his collar. Look at his tie. Look at his hair. One would think somebody had been throttling you. Here, stand still. She buttons his collar, ties his neckerchief in a bow, and arranges his hair. There. Now you look so nice that I think you'd better stay to lunch after all, although I told you you mustn't. It will be ready in half an hour. She puts a final touch to the bow. He kisses her hand. Don't be silly. I want to stay, of course. Uh, unless the reverend gentleman, your husband, has anything to advance to the contrary. Shall he stay, James, if he promises to be a good boy and to help me to lay the table? Marchbanks turns his head and looks steadfastly at Morel over his shoulder, challenging his answer. Oh, yes, certainly. He had better. He goes to the table and pretends to busy himself with his papers there. Marchbanks, offering his arm to Candida. Come and lay the table. She takes it, and they go to the door together. I am the happiest of men. So was I. An hour ago. End of Act One